If you are burned out and feeling burned out, then we should respect that. We have to appreciate burnout and the process of building ourselves back up from burnout. When you feel burnt out and when you feel depleted and you don't have anything else left to give, what the world tells us, and not even just the world, what we tell each other is that we're not useful. But this work is not the only thing that's important. You are important as an individual. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Hey everyone, it is Carly. Today, my guest is Tarana Burke. She was Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2017, but she has been working at the intersection of racial justice and sexual assault for decades. Tarana has worked as an organizer since she was a teenager growing up in the Bronx. She has dedicated her life to providing resources and opportunities for women and girls to heal from their experiences. She first started using the phrase, Me Too, in the early 2000s. But when it unexpectedly went viral in 2017, she had to figure out how to make sure survivors knew the phrase was only the tip of the iceberg when it came to healing from sexual assault. Tarana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We have been really looking forward to this. And before we get into the conversation, we like to warm up with a quick lightning round so we can get to know you better. Quick questions, quick answers. Do you feel ready? I'll be ready. All right, let's do it. First job on your resume. Oh, man. <laughs> I thought I was ready. <laughs> First job on my resume is... Ooh, I'm trying to count backwards. And I want to tell you you're failing the lightning round. I know, I'm failing fail like the lightning round. Because <laughs> I'm trying to count back how many years ago it was. So this is 2022. Ten years ago is 2012. So the first job on my... on my Oh, Art Sanctuary. Okay. All right. What is the most recent job on your resume? Oh, Girls for Gender Equity. Finish the sentence. What best describes your workday? Working nine till? Uh, not nine. <laughs> <laughs> what time do you start? Start about 7.30. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Night owl. What is the last show you binge watched? Uh, billions. What is your biggest vice? Not getting enough sleep. What is the app you use most on your phone? My calendar. (laughs) (laughs) What is the last photo you took on your phone? A selfie of me. Well, I didn't take it, but my yoga instructor took it. (laughs) Was it a good, was it an impressive pose? It was finally hitting this pose that I've been trying to get. Which one? I don't know what you call it. The one where, you, where your leg goes all the way back and your arms are up like this. How do you relax? Sitting quietly in a dark room. All right. I like that. Okay. I feel like we know you a little bit better. So I'm gonna, we're going to move into the, the heart of our show. You have been organizing since you were a teenager. What was the first rally or event you ever organized? The very first thing I ever organized was in my high school, we organized against our principal. <laughs> Our principal was doing some biased things. So we had a kind of 
thing outside the cafeteria in the, in the that I organized some students to protest, to get students on board to say, this is not fair, the way Mr. Leader is responding to the Black and brown students in the school. And I think I think that was the first, yeah. Calling attention to racial justice and sexual assault has been very much part of your, your DNA and your life since you were a young girl. But when did you start recognizing that organizing work could actually create change around these topics and these issues? It was around the Central Park Jaga case in New York. We had come back from a leadership camp and it was just like, it was kind of chaos in the city around this case. It was like headlines all over the place. And as students, we felt like nobody recognized. We had traveled out of the city to this huge leadership camp in the South and did this really positive thing, and that kind of thing didn't get headlines. But, you know, they were calling these black and brown boys animals and saying they had been wilding and all this kind of stuff. And we held a press conference, and it was very small. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, but it felt big. And people attended our little press conference, and I could feel that feeling of power for inner-city kids who are told Everything, every step of the day, all day long, from the time you get up to the time you go home, what to do, where to move, how to move. To be able to speak up and say, this is wrong and I exist and my voice matters, it felt really exciting and felt really important. And that was the first time that I felt like my voice mattered and that I could make a difference, if not in the world, at least in my community. That was really important to me. We talk a lot on the show about burnout. I think one of the things that is is all too common with people who work in any sort of advocacy work is that they oftentimes have a personal connection mm-hmm. to the thing that they're organizing around. Yeah. And it can be so hard on a given day to separate your personal experiences from your professional ones. I am just like so curious, how have you been able to create distance between what has happened to you personally and what you bring every day to your work and how have you maintained sanity in doing that and health? I don't create distance. I think that's a myth. I often quote Joanne Smith, who is the founder of Girls for Gender Equity, who who says we come to the work because we are the work. Mm-hmm. There is no distance between who I am, what happened to me and what I do. What there is is I'm really intentional in listening to my body and my needs. The author, Toni Morrison, I had the pleasure of spending time with her. And during that time, my daughter asked her about writer's block. And she says, she doesn't believe in writer's block. She says, if you are blocked, it's because you're supposed to be blocked. She said, we have to learn to respect the pause. And what I took from that is not just a pause in writing. If you are burned out and feeling burned out, then we should respect that. That we have to appreciate burnout and the process of building ourselves back up from burnout. When you feel burnt out and when you feel depleted and you don't have anything else left to give, what the world tells us, and not even just the world, what we tell each other is that we're not useful. You're no longer useful to us because you're burnt out. And though you can't produce, that's because we equate our worthiness with our productivity, Mm -hmm. right? You're only worth as much as you can produce. 
but you are still worthy. If I watch the person pull out from their productivity in the workspace to prioritize their health, what you've now become is an example and a model for what wholeness and healthiness and healing looks like. So there is worth in your pause. We have to respect the pause. We have to respect burnout. And we should encourage people who feel burnt out to prioritize their health and prioritize their healing and prioritize their needs because then they become a model for the rest of us, for what health looks like in this work, right? Instead of just saying, well, you know, you're no good to us when you're like this. You are good to us, but this work is not the only thing that's important. You are important as an individual. Thinking about like the the heaviness of that quote, and I'm like, wow, you sound really healthy. (laughs) How long did it take you to get to that place? A long time, like yesterday. (laughs) Okay, I feel better. (laughs) No, no, a long time. And I am still struggling with that, right? I I know that intellectually, and I'm trying to still accept that. I have to still say that to myself. I know that as a thing, and I understand that should be the reality. But that is a reality that's up against a world that tells us something different. And I'm still faced with the guilt and the shame that that tells me something different. So... I don't want to sit here like I'm some guru that's like, I have figured this out, (laughs) you know, follow me, children. No, I'm not that person. (laughs) As I get older, I'm getting better and better at it. And I'm raising my child so that they don't have to make as many attempts at it, right? And the young people around me, I'm trying to create that culture in the organization that I run. And I'm trying to create that culture in the people around me so that they don't have to wait till they're almost 50 to be like, oh, aha, I should do this, right? You know. Obviously, the last two years have been traumatic. Yes. For women, the last two years have been traumatic. For women of color and people of color, the last two years have been especially traumatic. For anyone in advocacy in general, the last two years have been traumatic. But in particular, in the areas that you focus on, it has been heavy. What are daily, I don't know if it's a daily practice or if it's it's literally how you sort of check yourself to maintain those boundaries. What is your advice for those who are listening? I don't know if this is good advice, but now this I do practice. I have been practicing overindulgence. Every opportunity I get to go somewhere, to work from a different place, I I will work for two hours and sleep for three if I can. I put rest in my calendar. This is just new. This is like a 2021, you know, (laughs) practice. I just decided I am overindulging. So I had a stroke last year. I had a a mild stroke, which is one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me, particularly because it was brought on by stress. So 47 years old, I have this out of nowhere, this, this stroke. Having that stroke revealed this neurological condition that I was actually born with and, and didn't know. For over 15 years, I had been having these minor blackouts that I thought was vertigo, that I had doctor after doctor after doctor tell me, I thought it's probably vertigo. Oh, it's probably an inner ear thing. And it turns out it's a neurological condition that, it, that I was predisposed to. If I hadn't had the stroke, I wouldn't have had all these series of tests. And I found this Black woman neurologist in New York who did a deep dive and found this condition. And she said to me, quite frankly, you need to change your life and de-stress or you will die. And 
initially, you know, de-stressing for me was like, okay, I just need to like, I don't know, take two less meetings, right? I just, I just, I did not understand how to de-stress until I had another episode, not quite the stroke, but another sort of episode. Then I got it. So we packed up our apartment and we moved from New York. I moved to Maryland and to a quiet neighborhood. I'm a Bronx person. I'm from the Bronx. I'm from New York. I love New York. I left the city. We live a whole different life now. I wrote about this in the book I wrote with Brene Brown earlier this year. Since I wrote about it and started talking about it, the number of Black women in particular, but other women in general, of all races, but certainly Black women and other women of color who have come to me and said they have, we know about fibroids in Black women. We hear about that. We know about high blood pressure and diabetes. I'm talking about other things that we don't hear about that are stress-related. I have a friend who has epilepsy that came on in her 40s. Rare diseases that Black women are getting due to stress. And then you have COVID, right? So when I say overindulgence, if you have a cold even, and you are fine, the cold was three days, you feel better, take a week. If you can do something in two hours, take four. I'm overindulging and I'm not apologizing for it. That is how I am treating myself nowadays because I have worked so hard. I've worked so hard in my life. I remember days in my 20s and 30s where I was so tired I fell asleep standing up. You know, I'm a single mother. I've raised my child alone. I mean, with a village of people who helped me, but for the most part alone, been the, the sole financial, emotional, mental, physical resource for a human being. That is a lot of work. And so I'm okay with overindulging and I plan on for as long as I can <laughs> doing that. And I encourage women in particular to overindulge as much as you can afford. I'm not saying go out and spend money you can't afford. That's that's going to cause you more stress, right, Nick? But in the, in the small ways you can fit it into your life, overindulge. I have chills listening to you right now. First of all, I'm so glad you're okay now. And, and thank you for sharing that. And I think what you're hitting on is that so often women's symptoms are dismissed. Women of color symptoms are so infamously dismissed. Yeah. You add COVID on top of it. There, all of us need to be putting our health first right now, both physical, of course, and mental as well. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> How did that phrase start? You know, I I actually had the work before I had the phrase. There was a deficit in the community that I was serving. No resources, no conversation even. And I really saw that gap in resources and wanted to fill it. But then the phrase, the actual words came from me finally realizing that I had to, before I could, and I did I did the thing that so many survivors do. I see it, I promise you, on a daily basis. I get an email or a DM or a message on social media from some well-meaning survivor saying, I, I want to help. <laughs> you know, I want to start an organization or how do I join the Me Too movement? I'm a survivor and I want to help. And what I read that they don't see, and they're very well-meaning, but what they don't see is they are projecting outward because they are trying to avoid the thing that's inward, right? I was doing the same thing. I wanted to help. 
And I was very well-meaning. I saw these little girls who were in so much pain and the young people who were in my community. Some didn't even know they were survivors. And the people who reach out to me want to help other survivors and they want to help advance the movement. And a lot of us survivors of sexual violence want to help everybody else before they're able to say me too. Or they say me too and they think that's it. I've said me too. I just want to help somebody else. And that's just the beginning. It's the the scratch of the surface. I said it because I needed a way to to try to figure out how to connect and tell my story. But it was just the tip of the iceberg, right? And it's the thing I want people to know and understand more than anything. Me Too is, it can be the whole story, right? It's a way to say it. You don't have to tell your story and give all the gory details. Or it can be the start of the story. But no matter if it's the start of the story or the whole story, there's always more work to do. The work starts with you. Like a lot of folks are like, all right, I said me too, and now I want to be a movement leader. <laughs> like, have you told yourself your story? That's a big, important part, a big, important step that a lot of us miss. You're bringing up a really important point and distinction of how the movement started versus at times how it ended up being digested by the zeitgeist, mm. which is my understanding is that what you've focused on the most is making sure that survivors of sexual assault, in particular Black women or Black young girls, mm-hmm. have the tools needed to heal after they say, me too. And so how did you start constructing the resources of what you saw that they needed? I started thinking about what I needed. You know, I, I was so scared and I did that with like a shaky hand and a shaky voice because I was scared that I was gonna mess up. I'm not a therapist, I'm not a social worker, but quite frankly, the social workers or the guidance counselors who were around weren't talking about it. And so the way I started constructing it was thinking about what could somebody have said to me at 12 or 13 when I was in the midst of it, right? Those were the age, that's the age I was. I was working at that time with with junior high school students, middle school students. What could somebody have said to me at 12 that would have grounded me, made me feel comfortable, made me feel anything other than what I was feeling? And I started there. I didn't have any information when I was 12. Nobody had ever in my life said to me, this is what rape is. Literally, I'd heard the word rape. I didn't understand it other than what I saw on TV. I didn't know this other thing that was happening to me qualified as the same thing. My very first workshop included definitions of things like statutory rape, rape, incest. Like, I literally define those words for these children. That adults shy away from and act like children shouldn't hear those things. Children are experiencing these things and they don't know what to call it. And I was a parent at that time and I always tell the story about my daughter. My daughter, at like two or three, I had rushed them to the hospital once because they had a really high fever. And when they came home, my inquisitive child wanted to know why we left the house at like one in the morning. And I said, because you were sick, you had a fever, you didn't feel good. And for like months after that, every time my kid had something wrong, they would like stub their toe and say, mommy, I have a fever in my foot. (laughs) And we all thought it was so cute, but it was because they didn't have language to tell me what really hurt. 
And I would always think about that because language matters. Words matter. Definitions matter. And that's why I gave the kids that I worked with the language, the words to describe where the pain was. That's how I started. Very simple terms. And I used celebrities. I did all of this research to find out Black women in pop culture who had been molested or raped, whatever. I used Oprah and Mary J. Blige and Queen Latifah. And Gabrielle Union was one of the only Black women celebrities who openly talked about what happened to her. I used anybody I could find and I would tell their stories and then say things like, you see, they went on to live good lives. Good lives are possible for you. That's how we started. Very basic, but filled with possibility. In 2017, many of us woke up and on Twitter saw that Me Too was trending and it entered the zeitgeist for most. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction when you saw that? Oh, gosh, panic. (laughs) Why? Why panic? Well, I mean, you have to know I was not a social media person. I, I still am not really. I didn't tweet a lot. What I did know, though, was that a 44-year-old Black woman from the Bronx was not going to be credited with this work. I was not going to be seen as somebody who had already been doing work under the same name for the same purpose. And that when I did come out and try to do the work more publicly, people would think that I took it from this and my work would be consumed. It would be co-opted and it would be seen as a product of something that it wasn't. And I just thought, There's no way that I could bring it back to its roots now. It would forever be lost. And I would say that was short-sighted, but I don't think it was short-sighted. I just think that I got caught in a perfect storm. It just so happened that the world was ready to hear something different. People keep talking about how white women stole the Me Too movement, and I'm like, that's actually not true. (laughs) The media actually stole the Me Too movement. It was the white women in Hollywood who kept putting the spotlight back on me. And the media kept putting the spotlight on them and they kept putting the spotlight back on me, right? And then the media starts saying, well, I don't want to talk to any of y'all. Let's just talk about the men. We have to call out patriarchy. What they would have loved to, to happen, and by they I mean the media, and by they I mean white supremacy, what they would have loved to see happen is for me to fight. They would have loved for this to turn into a fight between Black women and white women about who owns the Me Too movement. And then it'd be no movement. There would just be a fight between women. They'd love for us to blame each other and point fingers. And then we, what would we have? We wouldn't have a movement. We'd just have a fight. And the men would just be off getting away with whatever they get away with. We got to have something more important and more special and bigger than what they were hoping. Imagine me and Alyssa Milano fighting it out on Twitter about who owns a movement. Nobody can own a movement. It's not proprietary. I coined the phrase, I did the work. And yes, it has been a struggle. It has been a struggle to have my leadership recognized. People will will name me as the founder of the Me Too movement for all the work that happened before Me Too went viral. People don't recognize all the work I've done in the last four years. One of the things that you've talked about that was, you know, the initial sort of Twitter outpouring, social media outpouring, celebrity outpouring of Me Too, your intention was not for people just to say it, but also to have the resources to heal. Right. So how did you take sort of this experience 
explosion of media attention, celebrity. How did you take that and turn it into an opportunity to connect survivors to more tangible resources? That's the work I've been doing for the last four years. So 2018 was just a whirlwind. I was literally like a deer caught in headlights. I I realized so the first probably quarter of that was the Golden Globes and the the Oscars and the come to do this and, you know, this person wants you on this show and all of that kind of stuff, right? I did that for the first few months and that's just, you know, I'm not a celebrity. It's not my sort of calling. And then it was, oh, Toronto, we want you to promote this cause or promote that cause related to the same things. And I did some of that stuff. And it was also a lot of come on this show, come on MSNBC or CNN because this person's been accused or that person's been accused. And I found myself on the nightly news, it felt like every week. And that got old really quickly, right? Because I just wanted to be like, roll the tape. I feel the same way I felt last week about the last guy. And all of that, there was no universal message being put forward about survivors And then the Kavanaugh hearings came towards the end of the year. And that really represented a big shift for me. When the Kavanaugh hearings happened, I felt it really deeply because it was our first sort of real organizing opportunity. And I was working with other national organizations, but I didn't have an organization. So I found myself at the table with like National Women's Law Center, National Domestic uh, Workers Alliance, these huge national organizations that could call their constituency together to respond to the moment. But I was doing the calling. I was putting out the call saying, come to DC and let's, let's stand up against this. And I thought, we are finally at a moment in this country where people are ready to put their boots on the ground in response to sexual violence. And I don't have a constituency. I have a vision, I have a message, and I have a voice. And I always have, but I don't have a constituency. And I don't like it, (laughs) quite frankly. This is the moment. I'm an organizer. This is what I do. And that's when I decided to start an organization. And so Me Too International, my organization, was founded in November of 2018, right after the Kavanaugh hearings. And what was also happening is all those organizations are amazing organizations. I love them. But none of them were survivor-centered. None of them were specifically about survivor justice, specifically about sexual violence, period. They included sexual violence, but none of them were about specifically sexual violence. And all of them were about women as opposed to the full spectrum of um, people who experience sexual violence. And so I created my organization. And so since 2018, we have been building this organization to support survivors. The real issue that we were faced with is that there's hashtag Me Too and there's the Me Too movement. In that, in hashtag Me Too, we have to respond to all of the people who use the hashtag, right? There's like millions of people who use the hashtag who in reality have never been responded to who need resources, who need responding to. These are survivors who are just wanting, and people skip over them and talk about the celebrities and talk about the politicians and the policies and da-da-da-da, but not the people. So we feel it's our responsibility to respond to the people, and we do that virtually. So we created our website to do that, and we have all these resources on our website, the database, and 
we created Act2 as the world's first activism database where you can go and figure out how to be active in the work to end sexual violence. We created the Survivor's Agenda, which is the first ever policy agenda created by survivors who say this is the kind of policies we want. None of this stuff gets the kind of visibility and media attention as, you know, Cosby, Cuomo, R. Kelly, blah, blah, blah. Right. And that's part of the problem. I get visibility because people want to hear what I have to say in response to the salacious headlines. My work doesn't get the visibility at all. And that's part of the problem. Well, I hope it gets some visibility right now. So I appreciate you sharing it. Thank you. We're going to go to a quick listener question uh, from Shauna. Shauna says, Tarana, as a manager, how can I make sure my employees feel safe and heard at work? How can I actively contribute to and create a safe work culture? It's a great question, Shauna. It is a great question because just wanting to do that, you're ahead of the game. But it's always interesting to me when managers ask this. I think you just, you do it. You are intentional about it and you create that space. You tell your employees that this is what you intend to do. And I think you do it with your employees, right? But I think one of the mistakes that employers make and managers make is that they ask people like me, or they read a book, or they listen to a seminar or whatever, ask your employees, what would make you feel safe? What it is that you need here? What would be useful for you to come forward? Like those kind of things, like ask your employees what they would need, and then find the best way to implement that and create the resources around that for your job. You want people to be productive, then you have to make them feel safe and you have to make them feel protected. Maybe I'm making it too simplistic, but it feels like the real common sense thing is to talk to the people and think about what you would need. Quite frankly, you weren't always a manager. What would you have wanted and needed? And talk to your folks. I appreciate that. And I agree with you. Final question. Who should we have on this show? You should have Latasha Brown, who is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. She's amazing. I would love to. If you can introduce us, we would love it. I'll do that. Trana, thank you so much for sharing your story and for your work. And I hope it does get the attention that it deserves right now. So thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.